On Christmas Day, we would have a birthday cake and sing Happy Birthday to Jesus. I remember that. I think it was Miriam's first Christmas, actually, when it suddenly like hit me like a freight train that if I don't do anything, Christmas doesn't happen for this child. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Today's episode is going to be a shorter one, y'all, because it's December and everyone is busy. Busy doing what? Preparing for the holidays, of course. It's Advent. We get ready to receive Jesus, both as a baby in Bethlehem and as he will come again in glory. So today we're going to look briefly at living the different liturgical seasons as a family. I did an episode about Christmas last year, so be sure to check that one out if you want more ideas. We're starting with Bishop Condorla. Hello, everyone. I'm Bishop David Condorla from the Diocese of Tulsa, Oklahoma. In the U.S., the holiday season begins with Thanksgiving. Yeah, Thanksgiving was simply a big, you know, with a family of 14 people, it was just a big meal. Everything we did was a big meal, but my parents always put in the effort, and we had the turkey and the stuffing, and somebody had to get up at 5 a.m. to you know, get the bread going, cut that all up, and all that stuff. Uh, But we always had it. Bishop Condola says that tradition is something that binds people together, that unifies them. Part of the holidays is building traditions. This doesn't have to be elaborate, and sometimes it's not even conscious. Tradition is just what we always do. Well, of course, that's built into families. But it's later, I think, often that uh, you look back on those things you used to do as a family and you think, wow, that was, those were fun days. So that's some of the importance of these uh, traditions that families develop is that they give the members of the family a way to unite together as us. Here's our family. One of the things that the 12 Condorla children remember is how they were asked to offer little sacrifices for Jesus during Advent. One of the things we used to do, my mother would put out an empty crib on the TV. And next to the crib was a basket of straw. This is at Advent time. And we were supposed to do good deeds. And for every good deed you did, you got to put a piece of straw in the crib. And the hope was that the 12 of us would have done enough good deeds by Christmas that poor baby Jesus would not be sleeping on bare wood in the crib. And usually there was sufficient straw, mostly because we cheated, I think. But that's the kind of a fun tradition. I didn't know any other family that did that at the time. Uh, And so it was kind of a unique tradition to our family and something that I I appreciated uh, about us that we do this together. So that's some of the fun of these traditions that grew up in families. And since they went to a Catholic school growing up, the Condorla kids had all sorts of other traditions for smaller feast days. The kinds of things that you celebrate in your Catholic school, and then they sort of bleed over into the home, St. Patrick's Day with clover leaves, and Valentine's Day with the Valentine cards and all these kinds of things. Halloween was just standard dressing up in what, at, in those days, those were pretty tame masks you know we didn't have goosebump movies and all these things yet um so we would dress up as batman or cinderella or whatever the things were 
and go around the neighborhood trick-or-treating and all of that. Of course, the greatest feast for Christians is Easter, which is prepared for by 40 days of Lent. Of course, we did the Easter egg hunts and all of that, and we went to Mass. But I don't recall, for example, any traditions around fasting. I suppose we probably did Meatless Fridays, but, you know, there was a lot of chaos around mealtime, and so I don't know if I remember it. <laughs> any of that. That question, particularly for the penitential seasons, um, we're still trying to arrive at that, I think, of how do we how do we do this for our family? How do we teach how do we teach our children about what the season is, what the season is for? And maybe it'll get easier as they get older and we're able to read more things to them. This is Sarah and Andy Safranic. I'm Sarah Safranic. I've been married seven years. I have three children. My name's Andy Safranik. I've been married to Sarah seven years as well. <laughs> At Lent, the Safranics try to go to the Stations of the Cross. We like to do stations, but unfortunately, 7 p.m. is not a great time. It's like children are, are crazy people at that time of night, to be honest. And so... What I've done more, and this is something that's frustrating because Andy participates in it less, is that we go and do them during the day, during Lent, often with friends, other moms. Their parish in Colorado has a cool option for this devotion. Our parish has has an outdoor station walk, which is particularly nice because the kids can be sort of rolling on the ground and picking up rocks. But then they sort of pop in and go like, oh, yeah. I remember. Doing the stations on their own or in a small group allows children to ask questions and be more involved and engaged than is possible during a parish-wide observance. That was one thing that we did growing up a good bit was go to the Stations of the Cross of the parish, at least when we were older. That was always a good reminder during Lent. The Stations are great because it it's, it's a visible reminder of the season and it's also meditative, right? It's time. It's almost like a mini-retreat in some yeah. ways. And the mixture of prayer and singing and uh, movement. There's also a Lenten cotton ball tradition. I've never heard of this one, y'all. Our family growing up had a tradition that we have not adopted, but I know that my brother and his family have, which is for the kids to try to help make the season more visible. We would get a jar and we would each have different colored cotton balls. And Whenever we did some act of penance, sacrifice, whatever it might be, we could, as sort of a gift to Jesus, we could put a cotton ball of that color into the jar. And if it was something big, then we had like big red ones for the family or something like that. And so that was uh, that was a way of visualizing the season. And it didn't really stick with me in the long term. I'm not entirely sure why. I don't know if it was because... As I got older, it was too visible, you know, that it kind of becomes a little bit of a how much did you do yeah. versus how much did you do? And with siblings, then that can yeah. get kind of contentious. Now let's go back to Christmas a bit. When Sarah and Andy had their first child, that's when Sarah had a realization about the holidays. I think it was Miriam's first Christmas, actually. When it suddenly like hit me like a freight train that if I don't do anything, Christmas doesn't happen for this child. That for years, 
the whole life of the church, the, the seasons of the church were, were something that just happened every year. Like, oh, now it's Lent time and we're doing Lent things. And now it's Advent and we're doing Advent things. And, and me realizing, oh, that was my mother doing that. And, and that now that's my job, which is sometimes exhausting. I feel like Christmas has all of its cultural expectations built on top of what we're trying to do in the church. That we as parents have to make the life of the church real in that aspect. Singing is one great way to prepare our hearts in Advent. That's, I guess, the one time of year that we do sing, because we sing a different verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel each week, each night at dinner. We light the Advent wreath. Also candles. There is much arguing over who gets to blow them out. Then we have your standard Advent calendar. A chocolate one? or No, it's one my... We had growing up, but it was ornaments in pockets, oh, yeah. and my mother made one for us, too. That That's not very religious, except for that it's counting down to Christmas. But you'd feel the ornament and try to guess what was in the pocket. Now, that was one of our first family gifts that we yeah. received at Christmas, right? Now, here's a controversial question. When do you get your Christmas tree? Andy's more particular about waiting on the tree. Like, it's Gaudete Sunday, even. So the tree, the tree is the last thing to come. The crash is first. Usually it's slowly getting put out, but Jesus doesn't get to come until Christmas. Bringing out the baby is fun. Sarah's godmother always gave her pieces of the crash, or nativity set, at Christmas. Now, as an adult, when Sarah unpacks the crash, she remembers the love of her godmother. But putting out the crash is special for me. Because it was actually a gift from my own godmother, the one that I have. She gave me a new piece of it every year. And when I was growing up and I saw my siblings getting cool and exciting Christmas presents from their godparents. Like, I mean, I, I liked it, but it was a little bit like, okay, it's another, it's another thing. <laughs> but I, I don't think I, I didn't come to fully re- appreciate that gift, like of her godparenthood, until I was an adult. And I realized, oh, like... Now in my marriage, we have this thing at the center of our home at Christmas time. And also, every time I put it out, I think of her. And now it's something that I share with my own kids. So godparenthood is a real thing. And just giving that small gift, that gift is a gift that stayed in my life. And, and Right, like long me. past the pogo stick that right. is gone now. Right. One of the challenges of living out a Christian celebration of Christmas in the U.S., is the fact that many people treat Christmas as only one day, and they often start taking down decorations right afterwards. In contrast, we really want to keep celebrating, at least for the 12 days of Christmas, from Christmas Day, the 25th, to Epiphany, January 6th. I actually leave my tree up until the very last possible moment, which is the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. At least I think that's the last possible moment. I mean, it's totally dried out and shedding needles by then, but that's fine. It's fairly easy for us to continue to celebrate it after Christmas because what we found over the last few years is as we're trying to strike this balance of getting together with family, that oftentimes right there between Christmas and and Epiphany is the perfect time to try to actually get together with people. And so it's easy to keep that momentum that way. Now, these are all traditions or ideas from people who are Roman Catholic. But Byzantine Catholics have a lot more, in addition to using a different calendar, so that often we don't celebrate feasts at the same time. My name is Bishop Milan Lach from Eparchy of Parma of the Rutinians of Byzantine Catholic Eparchy of Parma. My city is in Parma in Cleveland. 
Bishop Locke explains the year for Eastern Rite Catholics. We have reached the liturgical year with all the prayers, the fasting periods. We have four fasting periods. Roman Catholics only have two seasons where the priest rocks the penitential purple, and we are all meant to make sacrifices and prepare for the feast. Advent and Lent. Byzantine Catholics have four. Before Easter, 40 days. Before Christmas, 40 days. Its name is Philip Fast. It's a preparation also for, you know, for the Christmas and for Theophany, Epiphany. After we have uh, the fasting period before the feast of St. Peter and Paul. And after we have the two weeks, the periods of fasting before Assumption or Dormition, we are taking of Mother of God. So it means that, you know, the presence of the repentance in the church is a, is a challenge every time, every Christian, to change life, to follow Jesus Christ, and to, to know that, that we, we are invited always, you know, to make this, this, this challenge of our heart, to conversion of our heart. And what does that mean for them? What does a fasting period look like? During the, the Lent, this period 40 days before Easter or, or 40 days before Christmas, we have some, we can say, a liturgical days means that in these days we are not celebrating Eucharist. For reason, that is, you know, Lent is a fasting. So really we are fasting even also from celebration because Eastern liturgy, Byzantine liturgy, each celebration is a joyful, is a chanting. And uh, if somebody is, a, is in sorrow, can chant and not be celebrated, no? Since Mass is inherently celebratory, instead of just taking out certain elements, like Roman Catholics do, for example, the Gloria or the Alleluia, the liturgies are different. For example, during the, this Lent time, we have the pre-sanctified liturgies, where we are distributing the Holy Eucharist on Wednesdays and Fridays, that are prepared Holy Blood and blo- Holy Blood of Jesus Christ before Sunday before. And when it comes to the family, holidays are times that most people make it a point to see extended family, like grandparents. Yes, I think also, you know, they are supporting because there is wisdom. They have this wisdom, you know, from, from, from experience of the long life. They can maybe, maybe to be, you know, in the examples also for kids, the example of their faith, their prayer, to not to be ashamed to share the experience with kids, with grandkids, with grandkids. So I think it's important that we can, you know, to appreciate, you know, the, also the elder people as uh, the grandparents. Finally, if any of this Byzantine Rite stuff has made you curious, go ahead and find out if there's one in your area. What can I maybe to do is invite you maybe to participate on some liturgy. You can find out on the web pages of the Byzantine Catholic Church United States. We have four eparchies, dioceses. In Pittsburgh is Arch Eparchy, after is in Passaic, in Parma, and Phoenix. So this is a Byzantine Catholic Church. As promised, a short episode today. I hope you and your family have a wonderful Christmas season. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. 
And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, except for the theme music, which is composed and produced by Michael Taylor. And then the new music is from FirstCom.